electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Brian. And for Kelly, once again, here is what is ahead. Stocks struggling to bounce back, all following Monday's big sell-off. A lot of worries still hanging over the market, including, you just heard it, China's COVID lockdowns. We're going to get a live report with Eunice from Beijing coming up. Fed Chair Jay Powell also looming large over the markets. A big speech ahead for him tomorrow. Bond yields, they're way down. It's the last Fed meeting four weeks ago is Powell about to remind the markets about higher for longer. And one more threat to the economy. That is a looming rail strike. The president pushing Congress to end it. But if it does drag on, is there an opportunity to buy one other sector of stocks? We'll talk about it. We'll name names all that ahead. But as always, let us begin with the markets and a, uh, by the way, a very, kudos to you, a very long day for you. It is. I was up early watching Worldwide. <laughs> you do a great job on that show, by the way. Thank you very much. Well, I'm just, I have big shoes to fill, right? So, I well, mean, this is. Yeah, 14s. Anyway, so, Brian, Brian, yes, it has been a long day. A day, by the way, that started off looking like we were going to bounce at least a little bit off of the sell-off that we saw yesterday. And those gains kind of fizzled a little bit, but not markedly so. Right now, the Dow Industrial is at 33,788. It's down about 61 points, about two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 now kind of firmly below that 4,000 mark, 39.51 the last trade there, down about 12 points. Uh, just to give you an idea, again, we like to give you the context and ranges. At the highs of the session, we were positive by just around 13 handles, 13 points here, and down 26 at the lows. So you can see tilting towards the lower end of that range right now, off one-third of 1%. The Nasdaq Composite now below the 11,000 mark, 10,988, down 60 points, or around half a percent decline. So again, down, but not panic down. One place that we are seeing at least a little bit of a bid, Again, a short-term bounce offers some longer-term downtrends that we've seen is in energy prices, specifically oil. WTI, U.S. benchmark crude prices, $78.35, up 1.5%. Remember, $73.60 was the intraday low that we saw just in yesterday's trade. So we were up markedly from there, but still very much to the downside over the longer term. Energy stocks overall up about 1% the sector. Halliburton and Schlumberger, SLB, those two oil services companies helping to pace the advance in that oil services kind of sector and energy overall. Keep an eye on those. APA Corp also doing pretty well. And then we've been talking a lot about the rebound today in Chinese stocks. Those U.S.-listed China tech names for sure. One of the ETFs attracts them. The Crane Shares China Internet ETF ticker KWEB is up 6% right now. I'm showing you a one-year chart because, again, for context, this is a fund that has lost around 40% of its value over the course of the last 12 months. But, again, this is all about the basis and where you enter trades. Since the lows that we've seen near term, we're talking 53% gains off of those lows. So, again, Brian, very long-term downtrend, but as of late, some positivity there. Still a long way to go to make things up, but still watch those Chinese Internet names on some of that optimism coming out of there. We'll see how long that optimism lasts. Back over to you. Yes, we will. Indeed. And it is all about China. Dom, thank you very much. All right. So we begin there and China and the latest on the COVID crisis there. 
as well as the fallout that is starting to be felt once again around the world. Yunishin is live in Beijing with the government's response to some of the protests and civil unrest. You've also got the Atlantic Council's Fred Kemp here with his take on China and other major geopolitical issues that are going on right now. But Yunus, uh, let us start with you. The world, we're seeing stuff even some of you may not be able to see, maybe on, you know, secure social media apps as well. Is there discussion at all about anything on an official level? There is some discussion, but no direct acknowledgement of these protests. Uh, however, uh, just based on what we're seeing on the ground, uh, the security apparatus has definitely ramped up, um, not only here in Beijing, but uh, in other cities as well. Um, the uh, authorities have been also uh, looking to uh, find uh, those people who have been taking part in the protests. Uh, the uh, government, uh, like I said, didn't directly acknowledge the protests. However, they did, um, some top officials today um, had reiterated the Communist Party's uh, stance on social stability, uh, saying that China must crack down on, quote, hostile forces and illegal acts. Uh, Chinese university students have also been notified that they should go home, ostensibly for uh, COVID prevention reasons. However, uh, many university students had also taken part in the protests. Now, uh, the Chinese bloggers recently have also been ramping up their rhetoric, uh, blaming what they describe as foreign forces for these protests. The hope, of course, in the wake of, these co of these, uh, COVID, this COVID pushback was that we might see some sort of easing of some of the restrictions or potentially um, an opening. Um, so far, it looks as though Beijing is going to continue to stick by its zero COVID policy with some easing on the margins of the more extreme uh, measures that we've seen here. The authorities have said that uh, they uh, were essentially blaming the implementation um, on the local level for some of these complaints that they have been hearing. However, Brian, um, the uh, uh, one good note is that uh, they did also acknowledge that they've been able to ramp up their vaccination of the elderly. No mandate, though which is something that a lot of um, analysts believe we need to see here. And, and Eunice, the, but the vaccine they're using, is that still, that is the China-made vaccine of which there, I, I believe, and you don't have to answer this if you can't, a lot of questions about its efficacy. I mean, of course, we've got questions. People here, I would imagine the debate there is a little more stifled. Well, there, the, the efficacy is against uh, deaths. So I'll, the uh, science community here has said that uh, the uh, Chinese-made vaccines are at, uh, good at, at preventing deaths. However, um, whether or not they're effective against Omicron or some of these latest variables or variants is uh, still up in the air. Yeah, and so you do not have access to the Western vaccines. You don't have access to Pfizer. You do not have access to Moderna, correct? That's right. Now, let me ask That's you. That's right. Uh, they still are not allowed here. Yeah. Okay, quickly. If, if you test positive, do they... What, what you're outside, you test positive one of their testing. What happens to you? Do they escort you back to your apartment? Are you able to go get food? How does it work? Or do you always just have to have enough food in your apartment uh, under the fear, oh, my God, I could be locked in at any time? Well, the U.S. Embassy actually just advised um, Americans and then Chinese kind of saw this ad advice and, and started doing it themselves that um, we should have about 14 days worth of food and water in our homes um, in case of a quarantine or a lockdown. But to answer your question about what would happen if I tested positive, 
I would uh, be taken away immediately to uh, government um, uh, medical facilities mm. and, um, and isolated. And, uh, you know, and that's, it, it, it's, it's like if you test positive, you're taken away. If you are a close contact, you're also taken away. Taken away. So there's just been a lot of uncertainty. And yeah. Yeah, you're taken yeah. away. Um, in terms of close yeah. contacts, it's kind of up in the air. Sometimes they're taken away. Some of them are just locked down in their homes. Not, and the yeah. length of that is, is unknown. Unbel- un- we got to go. But it's not Ms. Yoon, please return to your apartment. It's taken away. This is unbelievable. Yunus Yoon, thank you very much. Just the anecdotal stuff is the most powerful of all. All right, so let's talk more now about this. It says China's COVID situation may be the greatest challenge, maybe the only challenge to President Xi since he took power and appears to be in power probably for the rest of his life. For more on that and what the world should expect, let's bring in Fred Kemp, president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Fred, I mean, we've been talking to Eunice for about three years now on this, and obviously she's a fantastic reporter, but for me the best reporting is just her own daily life. And to hear you're taken away. I mean, and we see these, you know, COVID-outfitted, effectively cops walking through the streets, marching, if you will. What are we learning about, not China, because the people and the government are different. What are we learning about the Xi regime? So, uh, Brian, uh, uh, I heard a new term this week, which is you've got to decide between freedom and Xi-dom. And and what is Xi-dom? It is basically a doubling down on uh, repression. It's the return of the ideological man. He really does believe in Marxism-Leninism. This is uh, uh, the most power in a single individual uh, in a very long period of time. What's dangerous for him in these protests is that they seem to be spontaneous. They seem to be uh, countrywide. Um, they, uh, it's not just about COVID. COVID certainly is what set this off. But it's uh, the danger of the breaking of the social contract between the Communist Party, Party and its billion-plus people, which was essentially, you know, you're not going to be as free in the Western sense, but we're going to take care of you, and, and, and uh, economically and otherwise. And people are seeing economic growth slowing. Uh, They're seeing individual freedoms being ratcheted back. They've got more doubts about their future and whether uh, they're going to have a secure future. Uh, And so the social contract, that's the biggest danger for him, is if people in China see the social contract as, as breaking down. If you read, and I urge all of our viewers and listeners to read a little bit about Xi's childhood, about his background. Initially privileged, his father was denounced by the Communist Party. He was taken away, I believe. Xi and his mother were forced to retreat. They were paraded through the town. They were basically humiliated publicly. He was effectively sent not to a work camp, but not far off. In other words, it was a pretty brutal adolescenthood for Xi. But he also learned the power of the government. The government had full control over his family, denounced his father, banished him and his mother away to a rural village, lived in a cave, literally at one point. You just wonder what the humanity is there. Or if there is that, given what we're seeing, with not only with COVID, Uyghurs, Muslim work, work camps, by the way, making all of our solar panels, yeah, I mean, don't forget that a lot of these protests were uh, triggered by a fire in uh, uh, the Uyghur part of the country where people died because it's believed uh, uh, the COVID lockdown made it uh, 
harder to rescue people, whether or not that's true. That's certainly what the broad belief is. I'm really glad you gave uh, some of Xi Jinping's history, because I think it colors everything he's doing. He's a true believer. He's seen uh, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's one of the things that, uh, that, that motivates him the most, that when you let go of power, when you loosen up power, you could lose everything altogether. He now has to make a decision. Uh, does he crack down or does he uh, reach some compromise on COVID and other issues? Or does he do a little bit of both? Uh, the party is 90 million strong in a country that's well over a billion, as you know. And so the only way they stay in power is uh, is by carrots and sticks. The carrots of giving people a better economy, which they're not yeah. doing right now. And then the stick of the surveillance state where they can watch people and they can rein people in. And so I think th this is really going to be interesting. I, I My guess is he's going to use some of both. Some I, of I don't see, listen, I, I can't see she, maybe I'm wrong, what do I know? I can't see she, because I don't see really many politicians anywhere in the world say, gee, guess what? Remember that whole strategy we had? Turned yeah. out it didn't work. We were wrong. We apologize. By the way, first politician who says that about anything, whatever the topic, has my vote pretty much automatically. She's going to dig in, Fred. He's not going to flip now and suddenly be like, yeah, remember how we locked you up for three years? Yeah, sorry about that. But, but if he digs in, then the economy goes further south. I don't think he cares, uh, does he? They print their own money. They don't care about debt levels. Well, but, uh, you know, if, if if they're at whatever point of growth they are now, 3.5%, et cetera, and if their growth is under 6 7% going forward, they could have more discontent. So he, he, he's got to find ways to still uh, get some domestic growth out of this. And so cracking down entirely could be against his interests. And it has been thus far. There's less investment coming into the country. Uh, the crackdown on the technology companies has hurt uh, their ability and and, and their strength. Um, you know, and so he right now, I think he's more interested in party control than he is in growth. But can he have both? Uh, can he have slow growth and continued party control? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, he kind of he got back in the Communist Party, according to The New York Times, some others by being kind of a super communist. I mean, just super adhering to every facet of their belief system. That's the only way he got out of that rural village and sort of back in charge. And now he's probably going to be president for life. Fred Kemp of the Atlantic Council. Uh, we appreciate your views. Thank you very much. Great to be here. All right, on deck. You better buckle up. Your next guest says there is more volatility ahead, and he's got some names, though, that might help you play a little defense. Plus, we're only days away now from a potential national rail strike that could cost the economy billions of dollars. We'll look at the fallout for freight, which shipper has the most to lose, and why the rails could be the big winners. The exchange back right after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. You can see some red on the screen. Stocks giving up some earlier gains, adding to yesterday's losses. Right now, the S&P is down about three-tenths of 1%. You have concerns about what we just talked about. That is China. You've got also inflation. It's cooling off, but it still remains hot. Economic growth, they all continue to weigh on the market. Your next guest expects more volatility ahead. It says right now, just best to stay defensive. Joining us now is Ryan Kelly. He is Chief Investment Officer at Hennessy Funds. Ryan, good to have you back on again. And you think a name... Like an academy sports is a defensive company. Midwestern, largely, it's kind of the dick sporting goods of the Midwest. What do you like about academy? Well, we like a few things about them. Number one, uh, you know, this is in our mid-cap portfolio. And in that portfolio, we're looking for companies that are showing year-over-year earnings growth. They're showing momentum in the stock. Uh, they are trading at a pretty low price to sales ratio, and this fits all of those uh, different categories. So that's just one of a uh, few different uh, retail stocks that we have in there. Um, we also, uh, in that portfolio, which has done pretty well this year, uh, given where the market has gone, uh, we also like, uh, we have energy as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, while we want to play defensive uh, and we want to be on the consumer staple side uh, or, or utilities, um, also, we think energy is going to continue to go up from here as well. There's still just too much uh, going on out there. There's not enough production. Um, we have uh, in that fund as well a lot of energy, which has been pushing it higher. Um, and uh, uh, we have an energy transition fund as well. And that one has moved more into the traditional energy side. And you just uh, showed up there a couple of the names we own in that fund. And that's Antero uh, Resources and uh, Slumberjay. So, uh, again, volatility is uh, just part of what the market does. Uh, we are constructive over on the market over the longer term. Uh, we do think that uh, you know there's going to be a lot more, as you said in your teaser, a lot more issues with inflation and what the Fed's doing and uh, the scary word of recession. Yeah, uh, that's going to cause volatility. So uh, you know some of these uh, uh, more uh, you know defensive sectors as well as um, uh, energy, we think, are going to uh, be a pretty good place to be right now. Yeah, you know, and we have people that come on and they talk about some of the big dogs all the time, the Chevrons, the world, nothing wrong with that, Occidentals. You've got different names. You've mentioned, I believe, you know, on Antero Resources, okay? Uh, Antero is it's not a company we, we talk about or, or speak with a lot, but this is an Appalachia play. It's a little bit different than Texas, and it's kind of unique. Yes, it absolutely is. This is one of the uh, uh, best pure play uh, natural gas and natural ga gas liquids producer uh, in the country. As you know, we've had this shale boom going on for many years. Uh, and throughout, uh, I think one thing we've learned this year is that uh, the United States and their production of natural gas, I mean, that natural gas could go anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, there is a whole lot of demand out there for natural gas. Uh, we, we export at our peak capacity right now. We need to create more uh, export terminals. Uh, but Antero Resources, we think, is uh, a good place to be in that it's the producer. Natural mm -hmm. gas prices obviously up a lot this year. It's helping them. And they're in a very good area of the country as well in the Marcellus and Utica shales. That's it. West Virginia, lower Pennsylvania, kind of unique company. 
Uh, and unique stock, Academy Sports at Antero. I guess we'll move on to the Bs next time you're around and on. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. All right. And for more investment ideas, do not miss the second event of this week. This is CNBC Pro Week, by the way. Today at 3 p.m. Eastern on your second screen, of course. Fun Strats Tom Lee will join Frank Collin with his thoughts on the market and more. Go to CNBC.com slash Pro Talks to sign up. By the way, cheap plug tomorrow at 3 p.m. Your guest is Leon Cooperman. I will be interviewing Leon, taking some of your questions as well. So sign up for today. Sign up for tomorrow. Just sign up. All right, still ahead. Elon Musk is taking on Tim Cook and Apple. Is he in over his head, though? Taking on the world's biggest company? We'll explore. But first, Steve Leesman is back with part two of his series looking at the broken system for legal immigration. The startling stats you need to hear. The exchange is back right after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, the markets are in the red right now. Not, to, not down too much. Dow's down one-tenth of one percent. NASDAQ, the big loser, it is down seven-tenths of one percent. But why don't we get a quick check on some of the mega-cap names, the Apples, Microsoft, Alphabets, Amazons, the world? Well, they're lower across the board. In fact, Apple's down 2%. Amazon's down 2% as well. Here's an RBI, random but interesting. Thank you, AJ. Amazon is on track for its fourth straight losing month. That is the longest monthly losing streak for Amazon since all the way back in 2006. So what is that like? Carry the one 16 years ago. It's a 16-year worst trend for Amazon on a monthly basis, down about 30% in that time. All right, now let's step out of the markets, get a CNBC News update with Bertha Coops. I always love those RBIs. Hi, Brian. Here's what's happening at this hour. The National Weather Service is warning of what it calls a major severe weather and thunderstorm event. It's expected today in the southeastern U.S., and they say it could generate very dangerous tornadoes. The risk is highest in central Mississippi. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has a new strategy to remove and treat people with severe mental illness on the city's streets and voluntary hospitalizations. Adams says he wants to end the practice of only forcing violent people to receive treatment in a hospital. And the U.S. Coast Guard has released close-up video of the first Moana Loa eruption in 38 years. Officials in Hawaii say the lava does not pose a threat to communities near the volcano. But boy, that is spectacular video, isn't it, Brian? First since 1984 is what you said, I believe, Bertha. I mean, that is... Yeah. that is. Uh, or as some people like to say, 1984. Well said. That's an RBI right there. And that's a much more dramatic one than, than my market stat. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. All right, still ahead. President Biden calling on Congress to act now to prevent a rail strike. Outgoing Speaker Pelosi says she will introduce a bill tomorrow. But what if that gets derailed? We'll look at the potential winners and losers in that scenario, including this stock. It is potentially one of the losing names. It is your mystery chart, and it is next.
All right, welcome back to The Exchange. We are just over a week away from a possibly devastating rail strike. If we get it, it could cost the economy up to $2 billion per day. But that threat may have receded after President Biden called on Congress to intervene, saying there is, quote, no path to resolve the dispute at the bargaining table. The president urging Democrats to impose the labor deal, now arguing they cannot let their pro-union convictions, quote, hurl this nation into a devastating rail freight shutdown, end quote. Congressional leadership appears to be on board with the president, Speaker Pelosi saying the House will vote on a bill to resolve the dispute tomorrow. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has agreed to get a deal done as soon as possible. But if Congress doesn't get something done before December 9th, a rail shutdown could happen. And if it does happen, it could have a major impact on trucking. Frank Holland has the details, and this is a big deal. Yeah, it certainly is a big deal. Obviously, a strike would be disastrous for the U.S. economy. However, it is benefiting some trucking names. For example, shares of XBO up more than 20% since September 15th, when the Biden administration brokered a tentative agreement in these rail negotiations. The biggest beneficiaries of all this uncertainty, less than truckload companies. Those are trucklers that put loads from multiple companies in one truck, and they generally focus on industrial and commodity freight that has also largely moved on rails. We're talking names like Old Dominion, Sia, and Landstar rallying compared to the flat S&P. Cowan puts the likelihood of a strike at 30%, with most analysts believing it would only last hours, if at all. But later this week, the preparations for a strike will still begin, and the CCO of ArcBest says their customers are already preparing for the very worst. We actually got a chance to, to try out some of the contingencies then, and we did see some of our customers, especially uh, CPG or consumer packaged goods uh, shippers, started to move some things into, into more of a truckload type uh, mode. All right. The truckload he was referring to is when companies use the full capacity of a truck. Analysts tell me Knight Swift, the nation's largest truckload carrier, and Werner, a trucker for Walmart, they're both expected to benefit from that ramp up in volume and also get added pricing power. The companies expected to be negatively impacted are J.B. Hunt and Schneider. These are companies that get a major portion of revenue from intermodal or container shipping. You got to remember rails are a feeder into their container shipping networks. Yeah. And, and are there ones Frank, do you think are more exposed than others? Or also, can the trucks, could they absorb it? Let's say all the freight the tr- right. rails go off the rails. Are there, <laughs> there's, not, there's no way there's enough trucks to fill I mean, out. number one, great turn of phrase. Um, but if it goes, quote unquote, off the rails, no. You can't take all the freight from the rails. The rails are 30 to 35% of the freight capacity here in the United States, North American market. So all of it can't be absorbed and certainly not in the same time frame. That's the really important part. So you heard that CCO of ArcBest mentioned that consumer packaged goods would be the first place to find a home because you have to remember, you have to get more toilet paper in. You have to get more paper towels. Yes, you do. <laughs> you have to get more paper towels and soap, things like that. People need those all the time. Those are the, the first things that to be replenished in a supermarket or a Walmart or a Target. And then after that, the harder fit would be things like grains or large industrial equipment that can fit into a rail car and be moved. Um, with, it's not as time sensitive. No, because there's the specialty rail cars you see with the exactly. coal in them or grains or liquid. It's not like there's just trucks waiting around. Precisely. There's not just a bunch of trucks waiting around to haul grain. That's not really how it works. It generally moves from those specialized containers onto the back of a truck. Again, that's called intermodal. If the rails are shut down, that definitely backs all that up. And last week, if you look at the stats, grain shipments, they increased 8% year over year in the last week of data. As you would suspect, a lot of people are trying to move grain before a potential rail strike. But again, a lot of people are doubtful that it would actually happen. A lot of people believe that Congress would step in. Well, it looks Congress is at least in process. And let's see where we go. I love how you put the toilet paper before the food. 
It might be. <laughs> it might work the other way a little better. <laughs> it's inverted. It's Frank chicken and egg, right? That's it. That's it. Frank Holland, thank you very much. Brian, thank you. All right. Well, your next guest says there are a couple segments particularly vulnerable to a rail shutdown, especially if it lasts longer than a week. Let's bring in now Donald Broughton. He is managing director of Broughton Capital. Don, good to have you back on, although I wish it was under better circumstances. First off, Congress is in motion. It is seems like a bipartisan thing. I don't no political party should want to strike. Are you handicapping the possibility of a strike here, Don? Yeah, and I, I really don't believe there. Good, good to be on with you, Brian. But yeah, I really don't believe there's going to be a strike. You know what, what's happening is simple. You you, you played uh, you played rugby for, for Virginia Tech, correct? I did not well. Yeah. Well, that's all right. But you know, but my boys at WashU and your your boys at Virginia Tech were going out. It, that's basically they're having a scrum. That's what's happening between the management teams here and the union leadership. They're, that's what, what it's about. doesn't mean that they're not going to still effectively complete the game and that things are going to happen. It's just that the, that we're in that part of the, uh, of the process of which they're having a good old-fashioned scrum. Um, but there's not going to be a strike. Uh, in, in essence, uh, they've been given uh, very, very great packages and management and, and leadership of unions have are in basic agreement as to what they, uh, what's fair and what will work. It's just a matter of selling it to the membership. By the way, it's funny, mate. I actually played rugby for Wash U for one game when half their team didn't show up at a I tournament. Know. I wore the green and red for the Bears, but that's a different story, <laughs> by the way. All right, who's gonna? Which we talked about before. There we go. Who's who's gonna win? You know, assuming well, there is well, no strike. The You're right. There's no people. strike. Who's gonna win? Well, uh, uh, things will go on as, 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 as planned. If the winner would be a hunt because they'll continue to perform the services. The, uh, but, even, but if there is a strike, the winners would be people like Covenant Logistics Group, uh, who have a large group of team uh, drivers, because that's where the demand really would go, go through the roof if you had an interruption. And understand it's two things. One is, is there going to be one? And then two, how long does it last if it did, did happen? Because if it did happen, uh, you, had, you had guys like UPS and FedEx who are dependent upon the, that domestic intermodal service of rails to move parcel in longer lengths of haul, especially UPS. Yeah, and, and you know, Hunt is certainly a name that we're watching as well. I spent a lot of time with my buddy who runs a who runs a uh, truck brokering business for Landstar. Yeah, I know he's been very, mm-hmm. very, very busy. He's not, and I talk to him all the time. He's not seeing any indication of a macroeconomic slowdown. Are you, from where you sit, with the numbers? No. Well, I'll tell you what we're seeing is growth is not happening at the pace it was. And so there's those who are saying, well, it's the second derivative. Well, we, growth was happening so fast that it really was not a pace we could sustain. And so what we're seeing is just a less growth uh, overall. The exceptions to that are, say, international air freight, uh, Asia-Pacific air freight, for instance. That's, that, that's a problem because it, it bleeds over to other places. The, you can't really tell whether that's a result of China's enforcement of shutdowns of entire cities, or whether that's actually macroeconomically driven. But but when you look at the domestic freight in the U.S., uh, everywhere you look, it, it looks and says, recession, what recession? What are you talking about? Uh, it just, it looks very different than what the, 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 the news headlines would have you believe. Yeah, and, and that's fascinating because your perch, the transport's a leading indicator, and here we have 
Don Broughton, you've been doing transports for what couple couple decades now, Don, and you're saying they're not more, they're not showing signs. Yeah, of more, more more than a minute. That's it, more than a minute. Don Broughton, we appreciate you coming on. I hope you're right, by the way, about your projection. Always, for always, always a pleasure. All right, go Bears. By the way, thank you. All right, still ahead. It is day two in our special series on America's big problems with legal immigration. Yesterday. Steve Leisman laid out the issues today. He takes a look at the industries most impacted and why it's not just a matter of dollars lost, but potential lives lost. All right, welcome back. It is time now for the second part of our series on the impact of America's legal immigration system. The shortage of foreign-born workers can be felt and seen in many ways. Shorter restaurant hours, higher menu prices, longer wait times for services, you name it, go on and on and on. But in some parts of the country, it can also have deadly consequences. Steve Leisman has more. Nowhere are the problems of America's broken and antiquated legal immigration system felt more acutely than the nation's health care system. Foreign doctors and nurses play a critical role in staffing hospitals and doctor's offices. The estimated shortfall in legal immigration of 1.6 million workers, together with an aging population, means the nation is fast approaching a health care worker crisis with life or death consequences. It takes longer to see a physician, especially in those smaller rural communities. They may have to drive a few hours to see a physician. And those are the areas that we have the most trouble recruiting physicians to. Uh, And that's really where the internationally trained physicians have helped out over the years. For Americans throughout the country, a shortage of health care has meant a 24 percent increase in wait times. But in rural and poor communities where up to a third of health care workers can be foreign born, the shortage results in hospital closures and patients driving hours for care or not getting it at all. We absolutely know it's crossing lives. Um, Every delay in the ability of a person to see a specialist to get an exam Uh, done costs human lives and can be measured in that way. And so I I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the failure of the federal government and the state governments to get healthcare immigration right is a matter of life and death for millions of Americans. To enter the U.S., foreign healthcare workers must go into the same low odds lottery as all specialized workers, a lottery that gives access to just 85,000 workers against 484,000 applications. What's more, hundreds of thousands of foreign health care workers already in the U.S. can't work in their trained field because of licensing and training restrictions. Beyond health care, the immigrant worker shortage shows up strongly in science, technology, engineering and math. U.S. companies have no choice but to seek foreign workers for these so-called STEM jobs. According to the U.S. semiconductor industry, 72 percent of U.S. graduate students in computer sciences and information are foreign nationals. There's this gap that even if every single American that was unemployed had the skills that an employer was looking for or the interests in the jobs that they have open or even just were located in the right area, that even if those matched perfectly, there would still be this gap of four to five million jobs that are unable to be filled by the American unemployed population. As a result, some of the world's best and brightest are going elsewhere. The number of Indian students attending Canadian colleges and universities increased 182 percent between 2016 and 2019. It declined during the same period in graduate level programs in science and engineering at U.S. universities, further reducing the pool of potential workers. So America has a choice, experts say, reform the legal immigration system in the U.S., 
We're seed the field to other countries in the competition, Brian, for the best and the brightest. And, and you and I were just chatting. The definition of a skill is crazy. It doesn't include nurses, right? So the nurses is, apparently can't get in through the H-1B visa program because it, it doesn't, it, they've deemed it does not require a bachelor's who, degree. Who, who deemed that? What, whatever it was deemed, some of these rules, Brian, are 10, 20, and 30 years old, and they haven't been reformed in years. You know what we need? We need a redeemer. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody to, to deem smarter. I mean, a nurse a, is a, a Apparently the position. labor secretary is able to do this, and so far I think he's made some changes, but not the ones that people are calling for. Tomorrow, Brian, or sorry, Thursday we'll be back. And we'll, we'll, tomorrow, this time, I believe, we'll be talking about uh, Chair Powell and his speech. Mm. But on Thursday, we're coming back with the final part of this series, looking at solutions. And guess what the problem is? What is this, Jeopardy? We're going backwards? Gridlock in Washington. Oh, you know, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> uh, I, would, I could argue, then, that certain members of Congress are not skilled positions. Yes. Do you need a college education to, to be in Congress? Apparently, or, you don't you need know? anything because nothing's getting done. The fact that a nurse... He's not a skilled, considered a, quote, skilled job. It's amazing. Is just the, other, the other thing dumb. is, Brian, I'm, I, as, as I'm sure you heard in the piece, there are many, many, many skilled uh, medical workers here in the United States that have their training overseas that can't work in those positions here in the United States because of licensing requirements. This is a problem both at the state level and the federal level. Hmm. Steve Leishman will be back on Thursday for this. Tomorrow, you got Mr. Powell. Chair Powell. What time is that? It, uh, 1.30, we'll be talking about it. You get an advanced look, like he's going to send you the transcript or something? Uh, I don't know yet. i gotta, I got to give Jay a call. That's it. Give him a yeah. ring. Pigeon, whatever works. Steve Leesman, thank you very much. Sure. All right, still ahead, the aforementioned Jay Powell rocked markets with his hawkish speech back at Jackson Hole in August. With stocks on a tear the last two months. Dow's up, by the way, more than 15% since that speech. Will Powell's talk tomorrow bring another round of pain or joy? We'll discuss. Probably should have talked about it with Steve, but talk about it with somebody else apparently after this. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. We want to bring your attention to something in the bond market that has not happened in about 30 years. The spread between the two years and the 10 years is the most inverted it's been since the 1980s. And bonds have rallied since the last Fed meeting, but Jay Powell, as we just noted, set to speak tomorrow afternoon, and you might remember that hawkish Jackson Hole speech back in August that sparked an absolute market rout. Dow fell 1,000 points, NASDAQ dropped by 4%, although we have recovered that and more. So what should we expect tomorrow? Let's bring in Jeff Kilberg, KKM financial founder and CEO and CNBC contributor. We just talked to Steve, Jeff, about kind of the, uh, the setup you're the reaction guy. If we get a hawkish pal, he just hits us back over the head with the hawk hammer. What happens? Well, Sully, I think a lot of wounds are still healing from that eight-minute brief speech he had in Jackson Hole. I don't think tomorrow's going to be in the same stratosphere. However, I think he's going to be consistent with a very hawkish message. And to your point, I think the last time we saw this historic inversion of 73 basis points between the two-year and 10-year, I think we were watching Magnum P.I., Sully. Actually, if you put a mustache on yourself, you kind of look like a young Tom Selleck, Sully. But what's interesting is that I think that this inversion is just not sustainable. But this is deliberate. This is by design. And what does that high front end of the curve mean with the two-year, the one-year above 4.5%? That means that the cost of capital is higher right now, and it's going to continue to be higher. So I think the Fed is being very deliberate in keeping this inversion. 
I think we are going to see this move into 2023 back to some form of normalcy. But I think the Fed is using the front on the curve in a very interesting way. I know you travel a lot, Sully. When you're driving on highways, you typically see a runaway ramp, a truck runaway ramp. Yep. Why do we have those runaway ramps? Those are typically when you see either lose brakes, they lose control to prevent a crash. Well, I think that's exactly what Fed Chairman Powell is utilizing right now by having this inversion at 73 basis points. He's deliberately trying to slow growth. And of course, that's impairing some of the tech names. But nonetheless, this is working. And once they have conviction that we do see inflation going to their unachievable target of 2%, I think that is when you're going to see this pause. And I think that's going to be more representing the numbers because this is a big week. So we have PCE, we have mm-hmm. jobs data, and mm-hmm. of course, the speech, we're going to be focused on every single word. No, it's just funny you mentioned Magnum PI, by the way. In the show, his name was Thomas Sullivan Magnum. That's random no, but interesting. Was. That is my middle name and last name and my dad's I love name. It. There you go. I love it. Why are you booking profits in Duke? Well, and Duke I don't mean the university, I mean the utility. Uh, fair enough. We were just at Duke University last weekend. But owning Duke Energy has been a safe haven. If you look at utilities by and large, XLU is the proxy for the ETF we like to use to understand utilities. It's been about even as the S&P 500 is down about 15%. Duke Energy is a name that really has seen some exiting. We're booking profits. I'm not selling this. We own this. Still in portfolios, just reducing exposure, Sully. But I think as you see the front end of the curve, we're seeing more and more clients wanting to own three months. Six month, one year notes that are paying four and a half, four point seven five percent. So that's why I'm not down on Duke. It's been a great name to hide in in 2022. Mm-hmm. But I think it makes a ton of sense as I do envision the Treasury curve as well as yields coming down. And buying Amazon. Well, buying Amazon. It's funny we talk about bonds, right? They're going to be launching their multi-tranche bond deal. If you remember, just back in April, Sully, they sold about twelve point seven five billion dollars of debt. This is for general purposes. So I think it's really interesting as you see tech certainly been hammered with the rise in interest rates. The 10-year started in January at 1.5, went up to 4.5%. But I want to own Amazon here. I own Amazon. I'm adding to Amazon as I think the consumer is still in a really good spot. I know the inversion typically you know, precedes a recession or at least has 100% accuracy. But there's also been times this Treasury curve inversion has not preceded a recession. So I think that puts us in a different cycle right now. And the consumer, the household strength of the U.S. economy is different. And owning Amazon, I continue to buy Amazon. I have a sore thumb using Amazon sometimes, Sully. So Amazon makes a ton of sense here. As it's been beaten, I'm kind of forgotten about. And it's the broad swath fang stock. But I think Amazon is more consumer discretionary, in my opinion, than is like the true growth tech stock that it was in yesteryear. All right. Good good coverage there on the Federal Reserve. I love it. Booking profits and utilities, or at least Duke, buying Amazon, and for some reason using your thumb to hit the enter key. But hey, you do you, Kilberg. Jeff Kilberg, thank you very much, my man. Do appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Sully. All See right. you, pal. <laughs> Still ahead, Elon Musk accusing Apple of threatening to remove the Twitter app from its store and Calling Apple's App Store fees a, quote, secret tax. Well, I mean, is it secret? Or would actually Apple agree with anything that Musk is saying? Is this a Musk v. Apple fight? Use your thumb or your index finger, but just stick around. Steve Kovac has that story next. All right, welcome back. As always, want to get one more thing before we go, and that is the fight that Elon Musk seems to be intent on picking a fight with Apple firing off kind of a series of accusatory tweets. Steve Kovac joining us now with the story here. Is this really like 
Musk v. Apple, Steve? In a way, yeah, or at least it's Musk versus Apple and Apple's not responding and saying anything. So let me break down what's going on here, Brian. Elon Musk was claiming yesterday in a tweet that Apple threatened to remove Twitter from the App Store. Now, look, this is not how Apple operates. I've been speaking to developers about this for years, and Apple never threatens app removal. What they do instead is they might ask for changes in an app to get an update or approval for a brand new app. And what seems to be really going on here, Brian, is it's likely Apple Apple gave Twitter some of that feedback in a regular review, but the app is still in the store and Apple's approved updates even since Musk took over the app. Look, here's another way to look at it. A couple years ago, Twitter rival Parler was moved around the January 6th riots, not because of the bad content. There was plenty of that same bad content on Twitter that day. It's actually because Parler, by design, said it didn't have moderation. So it's kicked off by Apple and allowed to return after adding those moderation tools. Twitter was allowed that whole time to say because it was moderating as required by App Store rules for social apps. So how all this started yesterday, Musk was complaining Apple cut its ad spend on Twitter, and then that kind of devolved into a series of other attacks against the company. But based on how Apple has removed apps in the past, Musk would have to purposefully violate the App Store rules in order for Apple to take action, such as removing the blocking feature to prevent trolls. But look, he hasn't done that, Brian. And for now, Elon Musk is still saying Twitter will be moderated and that's all apple needs to see at this point based on its rules you said some kind of in the middle there that apple was cutting its ad spend on twitter steve i wonder do we know is that like a unique thing to twitter or is there a risk that apple is cutting its ad spend with with everybody and maybe musk overreacted no, it's, it's unclear. Ever. Well, first of all, we know people are cutting ad budgets left and right across That's all right. social apps. We've heard this during the earnings from Facebook and so forth. But at the same time, Apple is hardly the only brand since Musk's takeover to either pause or reduce spending because, look, they're afraid of brand safety. They're afraid of their ads appearing next to hateful speech or unsafe speech. And for now, a lot of brands are saying we're going to take a step back, look at what Elon does with the company, how the platform manages itself over the next couple of months, and then and see if we want to start advertising again. Obviously, Musk is not happy with that, though. No, and he's been kind of on a roll lately, hasn't he? I mean, I don't know how the guy does it. He's running like eight companies. He's got like nine kids. He must not sleep. That we know of. I mean, we, we don't sleep a lot on TV, but that guy puts us to shame. But he's been kind of on a roll lately. It's like testy Musk, right? Yeah, exactly. And look, in, in my view, what he's kind of doing here is looking for a boogeyman to blame for all these problems we see plaguing Twitter. For example, he's calling out Apple and some other brands that saying they don't like free yeah. speech because they won't pay for the ads. Although, Steve, remember that time long ago when everyone's like, oh, Twitter's going to shut down tomorrow? Yeah, didn't remember happen. that? Still going. Yeah, no, it was like three weeks ago. Everyone's like, rip Twitter. It's all over and like still here. I, nobody said sorry. <laughs> Steve, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.